as I read Romans chapter 14 uh, in what will be a standalone sermon. Uh, So this is, even though from the same book, it's not part of our series on Romans. And hear the word of God, uh, very similar to what we just read in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Receive one uh, who is weak in faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, indeed he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the, observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he, he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause uh, to fall in our brother's way, or a cause to fall. Uh, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which... Your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the the word uh, which you give to us and which you speak to us. Every time we open it, we we are conscious that it is a living word which still speaks today. We ask you, as you've done throughout the ages, that you might shed light upon your word, both through the inward work of the Holy Spirit illumining your word, but also through the outward work of preaching. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, uh, what I am doing here is uh, preaching uh, what I call a standalone sermon, even though our practice is to preach uh, expository series. We, we preach straight through a book. 
but here a topical sermon, which I pulled, uh, as, as you've, many of you have come to know from what I call, and literally is, my drawer of sermons, my spare sermons. Uh, not old sermons, I try never to do that, but, uh, but spare sermons, which along the, the way have occurred to me, I write them down, I set them aside, I pull them out uh, at the right time. The reason I'm doing so now is twofold. Uh, the first is that uh, this Sunday tends to be the lowest attended Sunday of the year. Uh, people just travel uh, this Sunday and also the Sunday closest to Christmas, so I might do something similar then as well. And so it didn't seem wise to me to continue along with our study of Romans with so many missing it. Uh, but then a second reason, if you were to ask how this sermon came to be and was placed in my drawer of sermons, I, w- I will tell you that in reality it's been in my drawer for some time. It was meant to be uh, a follow-up to my Romans 13 sermon, which I preached last year. And if anyone remembers that sermon, uh, frankly, I doubt that you do. But if you happen to remember, I closed with uh, a consideration of the Christian conscience. Uh, and it was that, uh, that teaching which led me to think uh, we really ought to press forward with that thought and, uh, and have a sermon on that. So if anything, what I'm doing here is following up on that sermon, uh, which uh, I've, I've meant to do for some time. I, I rarely do this, but let me offer this disclaimer. I do not have an agenda, either explicit or veiled. There's not one group of the church I'm rebuking or another that I'm commended. Do not look for subtle messaging in what I am saying, please. I'm intentionally avoiding the things which are, uh, let us say, touchier among Christians today, the things which are tending to divide Christians, because quite frankly, I do not believe we are ready to handle them. What I am uh, rather interested in doing by this sermon is laying a foundation of biblical teaching to deal with these issues in the future and promoting healthy and edifying Christian discussion going forward on the subject of Christian liberty. And so certainly it is my assertion That the Christian conscience, which Christ has set free by his glorious work, is a matter that needs to be discussed by Christians uh, in every setting, but certainly now. It's something that needs to be defined and maintained and defended as a Christian principle. But it is also open, as with all things, to abuse. And so proper limits, we see scripturally, are also put in place. Uh, And I have a historical example that I'm eager to give you on that. Here, looking at Romans chapter 14 very broadly, then, that is what I propose to do by offering a series of principles or propositions, both defining, uh, defending, but also uh, setting limits upon the idea of the liberty of the Christian conscience. And so my first proposition or principle is that understanding this issue Uh, If you think of those of you who are just in the Sunday school is crucial, is a crucial component of what it is to be a reformed Presbyterian. It was something that uh, going back to our study on the Reformation again in Sunday school that Luther and Calvin gloried in against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Luther wrote a series of treatises. Uh, in, in 1520, these are his most famous works. If you want to be familiar with Luther, get this book and read those. But uh, one of them was the Babylonian captivity of the church. He believed that the church was in bondage. But by far, that's a longer work. His shorter work, 
And the last one that you'd find in here, by far his most famous work, and I've read it many times, is The Freedom of the Christian Man. This is what uh, Luther believed the Reformation was setting in place. A glorious liberating of the sons of God from the bondage of the Roman Catholic Church. That was how they envisioned and viewed the, the Reformation. It was setting men's consciences at liberty from bondage. Luther and Calvin gloried in these things. This is something which, uh, if you think of our own priorities, again, as a Reformed Presbyterian church, what are the things that are important to us? Uh, things like, for instance, the Christian Sabbath, which receives treatment in our confession. Well, so does the conscience. The conscience of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. It's one of the 33 chapters. Uh, the pri- it was one of the great priorities of uh, these Puritans, these Puritan men, as they wrote this work. I want to read especially the second section. Uh, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Uh, the big statement there that you ought to latch on to is that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And he's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Uh, and they especially have in view, it's very clear in what they say in the subsequent statements, uh, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, especially implicit faith. It doesn't matter if you understand it. It's the teaching of the church. You just implicitly believe it. Well, that's nonsense, because that's cutting off uh, the relationship between you and the Lord. And God is not a God of confusion or darkness, but a God of light. That's the reason he gave us his word, was to shed light upon our ways with his ways and his truth. But if you don't like that way of putting it, I've entitled the sermon, uh, and this is what I wrote down at the head of my notes uh, over a year ago, a robust, reformed Christian conscience. I like that way of speaking. Perhaps you don't. If you don't like that way of speaking, well, then I will adjust my statement and say that the doctrine of Christian liberty is at the very essence of what it is to be a Christian, plain and simple. What, what we find when we open the pages of the New Testament is that this is a doctrine that is being contended for incessantly. It is, as in the days of the Reformation, so in the days of the early church, something that was being uh, either ignored terribly to the detriment of the gospel and Christian witness, Or it was being grossly abused. And so it occurs here in Romans chapter 14. It's one of the central concerns of the Christian life. Or in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. Or in the book of Galatians and Colossians, which you might even say those entire books are on that subject. Especially uh, Galatians. Nowhere in the Bible is uh, the importance and the centrality of this truth to our sense of what it is to be a Christian, that is, a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, this is the sort of thing I feel that Luther is contending for in all of his writings to Christian people. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's pleading with these Christians. And you get the sense that he's saying, do not give an inch Hold fast to the liberty that Christ has purchased and which he has bestowed upon you. And anything short of that falls beneath the glory of the Christian profession. And yet we also find him saying, 
And this is deeply important to realize, verse 13, for you, brethren, have not been called to liberty only, uh, or you have been, excuse me, been called to liberty only. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so Paul is advocating for it, but he's immediately constraining it. He's saying, don't misunderstand me. This is not an opportunity for the flesh. This is not an opportunity for self to exert itself. This is an opportunity through love to serve one another as sons who have been set free. And so it appears that the situation here in the New Testament is what it was in the days of the Reformation and again today. And that is that there's a mixture of both uh, aspects, both errors of de- or deviations. On the one hand, you have a gross undervaluing of this doctrine. Christians who don't even know what it means. To be set free by Christ, let alone to stand fast in that freedom. And yet you have on the other side of the spectrum, those who have taken that doctrine and they begin to use it for things that Christ never intended us to use it for. And so I am commending the Christian conscience to you, but with proper restraints and proper purpose. Now, using Romans 14 as our particular text, I want to give a series now of six principles And the first we notice straight away, although it it, it permeates the whole teaching. I'll sprinkle verses throughout each of these principles. The first is that each man lives for God and is accountable to him alone. He says in verse, let me turn there, I'm on the wrong page. He says in verse 3, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And then uh, in verses, uh, well, verse 4, who are you to judge another servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. Verses six through eight. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and God and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verses 10 and 12. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Finally, verse 12. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Each man lives for himself uh, or excuse me. (laughs) He lives for God. I said that entirely backwards. He lives for God and is accountable to God alone. And so Paul is expressing more broadly in this particular context, a key component of the religious ideal that Christianity embodies and even of the doctrine of justification itself, which, as we are seeing, is the key theme, the book of Romans. And it is that man lives as he lives for God. And that it is God alone who determines who stands and falls. Man is seen as standing in relationship to God as the primary factor in his life. And so each of us as we live, lives for God and looks for and look for his approval. Something which Paul summarizes, I won't read, but uh, I'll summarize First uh, Corinthians chapter four, verses one through five. He basically says, as a steward of the mysteries of God. I am not uh, set forth for your approval nor for my own, but the one who approves or disapproves of me, the one who will examine my work is the Lord. I live for him. He is my judge. He is my examiner. He is the one to whom I am accountable. 
And so it's in this sense that Paul is saying either in 1 Corinthians 4, autobiographically, or here in Romans chapter 14 as he is addressing the church, that it really doesn't matter what my brother thinks about my scruples or my faith. The only thing that really matters is what God thinks. That is what will determine my destiny when I have to face him on the last day because he's the judge. And until we've grasped this fully for ourselves and indeed for our brother, we won't have the faintest idea what the doctrine of Christian liberty is all about. But you see, it's on this basis that Paul says that no man has the right to pass judgment on the conscience of his brother. Since the life that his brother lives, he lives to God. And God alone is able to judge the rightness of his position. Verses 1 through 4, I won't read those again. Verse 10, let me read that again. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verses 12 and 13, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Every man lives to God and is accountable to him alone. The second principle inevitably follows, and that is that Christians, Paul realizes, uh, may differ on matters of conscience. And we must realize this, too, and make allowances for it. Verse 2. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean, and so on. That thought, uh, again, all these principles pervade the passage. You could almost read all the verses for each of them. I just want to give you a sampling. But what Paul is saying, the situation that he's describing in the early church, is that uh, there were differences between believers and that there were bound to be differences. Our consciences, Paul tells us, do not all tell us the same thing. And that is not because the law of God or the word of God is varied in what it tells one man or another. It's rather because there are certain issues which are not clearly defined by God's law. And all of us as Christians are left uh, free to follow what our conscience tell us on such matters, matters of liberty. And so look at what Paul is discussing here. Not the matters about which the kingdom of God consists. Verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the real essence of the kingdom of God. He's not saying those are matters of liberty. But things like what a man eats or drinks. One man feels it's a sin to drink alcohol. The law of God, we know, never says this. Yet he's free to follow his conscience in this matter. If his conscience tells him it is a sin to drink alcohol, then let him follow it. He has not sinned. It's a matter, in other words, as Paul says, between him and the Lord. Whereas on the other side, another feels that he's entirely free to drink alcohol. Not to the point of drunkenness, obviously, because scripture does prohibit that. But the point is he is free. He's free to do so. But if you look at what Paul is describing, he's describing both men in relation to one another and their place in the church. Both men are simply following the dictates of their consciences. And the point is, a truly Christian spirit would make allowances for both men's positions. 
Remember the principle that a Christian may differ on matters of conscience and we must make allowances for this. There's no need to look upon one man and say that he isn't acting as a Christian, but the other is. No, if you follow what Paul is saying here, he's saying that both positions are are valid and both have a place in the church. And it is a mark of Christian maturity or the stronger brother to recognize this, to see in general that we as Christians will not be agreed on all things, especially about those things that the word of God gives liberty. In other words, each man honors the freedom of the other, for they both realize that each man is accountable not to the other, but to God alone, who is the Lord of the conscience. And this is a point which is absolutely central to the whole idea of the Christian conscience and Christian liberty in practice. It's not just that you realize And that you seek to maintain your own Christian liberty. But it is that you are equally, if not more, uh, interested in the liberty of your brother. Even if his position differs from yours. If he's on the other side of the debate. Principle number three. The Christian must be able to distinguish between matters of indifference, matters of conscience, what we call adiaphora, and the essence of the kingdom of God. Again, verse 17 For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is making a clear distinction. And this is something which, once again, follows from the prior point. Paul is saying not everything is a matter of liberty. There are many things, and Scripture is full of these things, which uh, do not fall under these headings, or this heading. In fact, everything that Scripture addresses, by definition, doesn't fall under the, the rubric of Christian liberty. Verse 17 tells us what really matters, and, uh, which is, again, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those aren't the only three things that matter, but he's saying this is, uh, this is a summary. These are the things which really matter. And he who does these things, verse 18, are acceptable to God and men, whatever, whatever else may be true of him in uh, the realm of Christian liberty, whatever other scruples he might have which are not clearly defined by God's word. And so, a Christian is someone who ought to be able to make these kinds of distinctions. There are matters of indifference, adiaphora, things that quite literally do not matter. If they mattered enough to God to define and restrict them, he would have told us. But there are also matters we realize, and this is equally, if not more important, there are matters, yes, which are of the essence of the kingdom of God, and thus, the essence of the Christian position and Christian fellowship, things which define uh, crucially my relationship to my brother, things which I am not free to ignore, things which all Christians ought to share in common. And if not, I as a Christian ought to speak up. In other words, things about which my conscience is not free to decide because uh, they've already been decided for me in the Bible. And again, Paul is saying that These are the things that define the true Christian and his relationship to God. The things which not only describe uh, his relationship, but make his relationship to God possible. These are also the things that describe and make possible my relationship to every other Christian. They become 
the basis of brotherly love and edifying Christian communion, which is what Paul is describing here. And so our interest should be in the things which make for peace, Paul says, verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and things by which one may edify another. Having just said in verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And so I, as a Christian, always want to be at peace with those who serve Christ. Verse 18. I want to pursue peace with him. But the other side, let me repeat to this, is obviously that because I'm able to make these distinctions, I am able to see when a man is living outside of this. When a man is walking not in step with the gospel or the kingdom of God. When his profession or his walk are contrary to the essence of the kingdom. And then I may perhaps not be so charitable. I may even find it necessary, though he professes to be a Christian, to oppose him even to his face. And so Paul is not saying, it is a misreading of Romans 14 to say that he's saying, well, if a man claims to be a Christian, we should never oppose him and we should never take a stand. He's merely saying that you have to be careful. You would better be able to distinguish his Christian as Christian people, what it is that matters and what it is that doesn't. And matters of indifference, let me state again, are those things which truly do not matter. And they should never divide Christians. But let me also be honest and confess that this kind of thing isn't so easy. One of the reasons that conflict arises in Christian fellowship is because Christians can't always agree about what is a matter of indifference and what is a matter of the law. A matter that is of crucial importance. And I'm not uh, necessarily proposing any solutions. That's the hard work of building upon the foundation. Remember, I'm building upon, I'm laying the foundation right here. But in doing so, I am telling you that we have to be able to make these distinctions. We have to be able to say, this thing doesn't matter, but this thing is crucially important. And I won't give it away, even for the man or the woman I love most. Number four. The Christian must never go against his own conscience. Paul says this in, uh, in verse 22 and verse 23. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not com- uh, condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. He also says it in verse 5. One, person's esteem, one, day, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. In all those verses, he's describing the same thing. Your conscience tells you something, you ought to follow it, period. This is something uh, that Martin Luther was famous for saying at Worms. Just after he said famously, here I stand, I can do no other. He followed that by saying that to go against conscience is neither safe nor sound. He is saying, my conscience tells me that I have to do this. And so I'm even prepared to die merely because my conscience is bound to the word of God, which is an inspiring picture, isn't it? To think of Martin Luther saying that. And yet again, I have to confess that it isn't so easy. There are many times that we aren't clear what our conscience is telling us. And there are other times, perhaps, and this is certainly possible, that we feel that perhaps we're being misled by our conscience. And that maybe we lack charity. Even if our conscience is right, we we are not walking in love. And so, so often the question becomes simply, what am I supposed to do? I do not have clear direction from my conscience. 
But again, you see, Paul is saying, you have to be careful at that very moment. Careful not to go against your own conscience. Because that would be, he says, uh, to violate the first principle. It would be to seek to please man rather than God. And so in many ways, this fourth principle is the great principle. That a Christian must never go against his, his own conscience. That all our actions must arise, he says, from faith. And faith is an expression of my relationship to God and not to men. We must seek, Paul says, to stand or fall before God, not men, in all that we do. And as soon as we stop doing that, as soon as we start living for man and not for God, and we begin to live to please man rather than please God, we've sinned at that very moment. We've stopped walking by faith and we've started to walk by sight. We've begun to please men rather than God. And it is for this reason equally that we must once again be concerned not only for ourselves but for our brother and that our brother do the same. We are concerned to preserve not only his faith but his walk with the Lord. We may not agree with him. We may think his conscience is wrong and it's misleading him. But we must not, as Paul says in another place, try to become the Lord of his conscience. We must allow him, just as much as we would ask of him ourselves, the freedom to walk by faith. And thus to receive our approval and perhaps even disapproval from God. For to ask him to live in any other way would be asking him again to sin. Now does that mean, let me say again, does that mean that we have nothing to say to our brother? Perhaps it's quite clear that he's the weaker brother. That he has faith but it's a weak faith. And do we just leave him there? Certainly not. It's another abuse of Romans chapter 14. You never speak to the weaker brother. You just let him be weak for the rest of his life. That is not what Paul is saying. At some point you would seek to strengthen him, wouldn't you? Realizing that the consciences of some are weak, which Paul is saying. Which is almost to say, if you think of it, that they're wrong. Their consciences are misleading them. And yet even then you don't stand in the way. But realizing this, you might try over time to strengthen your brother. So that his conscience is not shackled by so many unnecessary scruples. And so that he might begin with time to walk in the glorious liberty of sons. But then the the fifth principle is this. And that is, again, something which is more or less pervasive here. The more time you spend with this passage, the more you realize that Paul is saying that our grasp of the gospel is revealed in our grasp of these things. To the extent that you grasp these things is the extent to which you grasp the gospel in its implications for the church and Christian fellowship. Paul again is telling us that the mature believer, the one who has got a clear grasp of the gospel and its implications for living, is the stronger brother, not the weaker brother. And he is someone who understands all of these points. For instance, the gospel Uh, that he believes and that he understands in a very deep way is what tells him that uh, quite clearly the kingdom of God does not consist in these things. That a man will not be condemned over things that do not matter. He will not go to hell for his scruples. And so the mature believer does not become overly exercised about another man's scruples. He doesn't worry about them overmuch. It's a sign of Christian immaturity, immaturity to become overly exercised. No, he lets his brother have his scruples. Look again at such verses and you will see this is the emphasis. Verse 3. Let not him who eats despise 
him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. They, they let each other alone. They don't become overly exercised. Verses 7 through 10. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to, to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 17 uh, and 18. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. These are the things that we understand. If we have any maturity as Christians, we have uh, what I would describe as the broader Christian perspective. We understand what matters and what doesn't, what it is that makes a man a Christian, what it is that saves him, what it is that enables him to have faith and to stand before God on the last day when he will be judged and called to account. And on the other side, what doesn't? No man, I mean, it's almost ridiculous to say, but I think it's a fair statement based on this passage. No man goes to hell for eating vegetables, nor does any man go to hell because he doesn't eat vegetables. Paul says Christ died for the weak and the strong in faith. And we only reveal our own poor grasp of the gospel and the work of Christ when we make it seem that he hasn't died for the weak in faith too. Likewise, we know that Christ alone is the judge. And his judgment for the one who has faith has already been rendered. And so our grasp of justification, which is at the heart of the gospel, is at stake. The whole point of the book of Romans. Do you understand this doctrine? Do you understand what it means for yourself and for your brother? That judgment has already been rendered to the one who has faith. That Christ has already justified him. And so who are we to judge another? One for whom Christ died. One who has true and saving faith. When Christ has already justified him. Would we put his faith on trial when God has already accepted him? Our grasp of the gospel is at stake. But the final principle is this. And that is, allowing matters of indifference, matters of conscience to get in the way, hinders our great work and task. The thing that God is calling us to do, and the reason he has saved us, which is to worship his one body and to love as he loved. Let me now give that historical example that I I was so eager to give. Uh, Luther, as uh, I indicated, he expressed Christian liberty at Worms. He, um, he expressed it in the freedom of the Christian man. But he was also equally concerned about abuses of this doctrine. When he had spent time at the Wartburg Castle, he was aware of the abuses that were occurring in Wittenberg. The Reformation was proceeding at too rapid of a pace. And Luther became incensed at this because he felt as though those who were weak in faith, those who were not yet fully persuaded, were simply being forgotten and steamrolled. And so he returned at the risk of his own life and he delivered seven uh, famous what are called the Invocavit Sermons. And there he called the church to task for going too far with the doctrine of Christian liberty. The work of the church, in other words which is a work of charity, it's a work of love, it's a work of Christian witness, it's a work of corporate worship, was being hindered. And this is precisely what Paul is saying as well. He says not to put a stumbling block at the feet of our brother's faith, verse 
13. He says, don't destroy the faith of one for whom Christ died over matters that do not matter. Verses 15 and 20. He speaks of offending my brother. Verse 21. Rather, Paul says, walk by love. Bear with them in their weakness. Uh, and this takes us beyond uh, the, the, the text which we read. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And he grounds us in the work and the attitude of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of me, or excuse me, of those who reproached you fell on me. And all of this with a view to united Christian witness and worshiping God, verses 5 and 6. This is how he sums up the whole discussion. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what he's describing? He is describing the work of the church as one of mutual love, And as corporate worship, we are to live in love and we are to worship as one body. These are the really crucial issues that are at stake in this discussion. Letting matters of indifference, Paul says, stand in the way of this great work is to destroy the work or it is to hinder the work and the mission of Christian people. It is to fail, he says, uh, to realize uh, the, the reason for which Christ died which was to save the weak and the strong and to bring them together as one body that they might join together in praising God. And so it's always wrong, Paul says, for the sake of conscience to forget your brother, to treat him as though he doesn't matter. Remember, Christ died for him too. And it's always wrong and is an abuse of this doctrine to forget about the broader Christian community and the broader Christian witness. To contend for your liberty and ignore how that might affect the broader church. The church seen as a body of believers, a fellowship whose purpose is to glorify and worship God, is what Paul is contending for all along. He's contending against a selfish and a party spirit. He is contending for the unity and the peace of the church. He is calling the church to realize her true purpose and task, which again is to gather as one body in a spirit of love and deference to one another in order to serve and to worship Christ and to call upon him together as Lord. The church seen as the bride of Christ for which he shed his blood and died, her her whom he loved and gave his life. It is her whose unity and love and witness must be preserved, Paul says, and not destroyed. It is her whose work must go on and not be hindered. We are all, if we are Christians, seeking the same things, which is to serve Christ. And so we must not become tyrants in Christ's church, contending for things that do not matter and which find no warrant in his word. Let this be our rule. Never do anything that might become an unnecessary offense. Dear brother, verse 21, never allow any matter to become more important than the gospel or to put it positively. We must ever contend for those things which build up and edify and make for real Christian fellowship. Verse 19, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Verse two of chapter 15, let us each please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. 
For, as Paul says, the kingdom of God does not consist of eating and drinking, that is your scruples, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if those things are true, then uh, these other things ought to be true together as well. That you're pursuing the things that make for peace, that you're gathering together in a spirit of love, uh, together corporately to worship God. None of this is easy. This is my final word. None of this is easy. But it is surely worth considering and taking to heart, engaging in a bit of self-examination and Christian uh, discussion and conversation. Let me ask you, do you share uh, Paul's burden for the church and Christian fellowship? Are you as, as concerned as he was for the good of the church and her witness and her worship? Or are you just still contending for your own liberty and conscience all while forgetting your brother entirely? I leave it there with you, and I pray by God's Holy Spirit we together might all have a better grasp of these things. And with Paul I pray like this, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And let us now come to the table.